Hello, everyone, and welcome to Blogging Theology. Today, I'm delighted to talk again to Sheikh Hamza Karamali. You're most welcome, sir. Thank you, Paul, for having me again. It's always You're a pleasure welcome. to be here. And, and welcome back from uh, Canada and North America, where you've just been on tour, I think. So uh, it's good to yes. see you back in Turkey. Back home, Istanbul. Back Istanbul. Uh, for those who don't remember, Hamza teaches parents uh, teachers and scholars rational arguments for the truth of Islam. You can experience some of those arguments by watching a free video series called The Quranic Case for God, and I'll put links to these videos in the description below. He has a bachelor's and master's degree in computer engineering from the University of Toronto, additional bachelor's and master's degrees in Islamic law and legal theory from Jamia Nizami in Hyderabad. He has studied and memorized traditional uh, manuals in all of the Islamic sciences with distinguished Muslim scholars. On their recommendation, he founded Basira Education, where he produces courses, videos, and writes books and articles on the application of traditional Islamic theology to contemporary faith challenges from modern science and philosophy. On the Basira YouTube channel, he has produced a YouTube series called The Thinking Person's Guide to Atheist Arguments, and more recently, a series about the beautiful person of the Prophet Muhammad, upon whom be peace, called <laughs> Discover the Prophet. And I'll link to these in the description below. Now, today, Hamza is going to discuss the fascinating concept of irreducible complexity and how Muslims should uh, see this concept. Now, Michael Behe is the author of a number of very influential books, most famously Darwin's Black Box, in which he formulated his idea of irreducible complexity. Now, Behe, by the way, is professor of biological sciences at uh, Lehigh University in Pennsylvania in the US. And he has a very good website called michaelbehe.com, which I recommend you have a look at. So, Hamza, what are your thoughts on that concept and his argument from an Islamic perspective? So, B's 1996 book has been around for almost 30 years now, and it's the probably the most influential book in the intelligent design movement since it was written. It's mm. still widely used by Muslims, um, uncritically, I think. And um, I think that his argument is... Uh, is a it's based on a weak materialism. Um, so materialism is something that that scientists are normally criticized criticized for. Um, but I think that the it, the intelligent design argument it also assumes um, a weak form of materialism. And um, and materialism I hope that in our conversation today I'll show that it is um, it's not just a something that we're religiously opposed to. Uh, but it's also something that we are um, rationally opposed to because it's a rational argument, a rational Islamic argument for uh, the falsehood of materialism. And when we look at this idea of irreducible complexity through the lens of the traditional Muslim argument from contingency, then um, it uh, it's it doesn't it doesn't quite fit. I think mm. there are a number of very important insights that it uh, that it brings. And uh, but if it if we put it into a uh, a formal uh, Muslim logical presentation, then it clicks in a slightly different way. 
And uh, that's uh, what I hope to show you today. Well, that's uh, tantalizing and fascinating. So can you elaborate on that? Yes. Um, so I prepared some slides. Um, so uh, these, uh, I'm going to show the formal uh, version of um, the intelligent design argument. This is taken from a forthcoming book, inshallah, I hope in a couple of months to release it. It's called Kalam 3.0, uh, Muslim uh, Logical Arguments for the Truth of Islam in the 21st Century. So this is a sneak wow. preview of one of, the, one of the formal arguments that I will be presenting in that book. So uh, this is a comparison between a uh, two arguments. Mm. On the left-hand side, there is what I call the, the Muslim Quranic design argument, which is what I'm going to show you irreducible complexity should look like. It's a more coherent presentation of it. And on the right-hand side, there's the Christian um, intelligent design argument. And that's what I want to focus on uh, today. Okay. Just a second. So B doesn't formalize the argument in this way. He's a scientist, a top-notch scientist, um, and uh, uh, and scientists don't normally do formal arguments. They make scientific arguments, inference to the best explanation arguments. Mm -hmm. um, but in order for us to understand really what is happening, we need to step back and look at the big picture. And so this is a formalization that I think helps us see the big picture. And I think it's very useful for for analyzing his argument. Um, so there's two premises, um, a traditional uh, syllogism. It has two propositions. And these two propositions, which are labeled here as IDN1, IDN2, um, they formally entail the truth of the conclusion, meaning that if somebody accepts the truth of the first proposition, and if they accept the truth of the second proposition, then they have to accept the truth of the conclusion. And if they don't accept the truth of the conclusion, they're only entitled to do that if they don't accept one of the two propositions that formally mm -hmm. entail the conclusion. So putting a formal structure helps us clarify our thoughts and it also helps us uh, limit uh, you know, the, the points of attack and, uh, and analyze things in a really clear way. So uh, the first proposition here is, uh, is normally not stated, um, but it's assumed in the intelligent design argument. In this first proposition, it's an either or, we call it a disjunction. It says that the, uh, that there's biological design. So we're going to look at a famous example of biological design that uh, uh, Michael Behe popularizes part of his argument, the bacterial flagellum. And so this biological design, there are two possibilities. Either it has natural causes or it has a supernatural cause. And this is the crux of the argument. The mm. argument, it sets up a competition between natural causation and supernatural causation. And then it uses design to argue that particular phenomena, they are the results of supernatural agency, intelligent design, rather than random, unguided, um, no intelligence, 
natural causes. So this uh, first myth. Sorry, if I could just, that seems to reflect perfectly or mirror what an atheist would agree with that. They'll say, well, the universe is either uh, created by a supernatural agent or it's entirely a natural process. So there's agreement between the atheist and the Christian intelligent design on the on the two options. You know, the first premise or the second premise, would that be fair? Um, actually, I think that um, many materialists would not accept this right. because many materialists, they don't even consider supernatural agency. So they rule right. it out. So yeah. they say from the outset that intelligent design, supernatural agency is impossible. And wow. that's often not brought to light. So the formalization of the argument is going to help us bring this to light and understand what's going on. So when uh, you know an intelligent design advocate, he says that you know the science proves the existence of a supernatural being, and then a common scientific scientistic response is mm -hmm. that it's not th this isn't real science, or science is committed to methodological naturalism, or um, you know something along those lines. Really, what they're doing is. Uh, they're, they're, they don't want to engage with his argument because they have, from the outset, dismissed the possibility of supernatural causation. Right. So, his, uh, so in order to argue that particular examples of complexity in the natural world lead to the conclusion of an intelligent designer, you first have to admit the possibility of there being an intelligent designer. Mm -hmm. So... So that's the that's the first kind of uh, you know setting the stage. Mm -hmm. Either it's a natural cause, and a natural cause is non-volitional. So I I prefer to use the terms volitional agent rather than an intelligent designer. They're synonymous for our uh, for our purposes. Volition means a being with a will, a purpose. You mean? Yeah, yeah. So the idea is that design shows knowledge that's intelligent intelligent design and a particular design has been purposefully chosen by mm. someone who, who has agency so design is evidence for agency and in the natural world on materialism um, there isn't any agency there's just the initial conditions of the big bang atoms and molecules bumping into each other and the laws of nature and there's no choice there's no, there's no volition. There's no knowledge. Things are just the blind result of, uh, of laws of nature, which are not agents. And that's really the, uh, the, the point, the point of contention. So after setting up the argument by putting forward this possibility or this dichotomy, the second premise. So the first says either A or B. The second premise rejects A. It says that the design that we see could not have come about through natural causation. And there are many different kinds of intelligent design arguments that can be made, but all of them, they, they fall into this, general, into this general framework. So Behe, he argues, using the concept of irreducible complexity, that the certain kinds of design in living things could not have been a result of natural causation. And why? Because they are irreducibly complex. That means that 
they cannot be arrived at by a step-by-step evolutionary process. So he's arguing against the theory of evolution. Um, mm. And and so so this 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 form of the argument actually it can be um, there's two main kinds of intelligent design arguments. One is it are it argues from biological design against the theory of evolution. Um, another one argues from the constants of the universe, and this is called the fine fine tuning argument. There's there's small there's small differences, but for today I want to focus on the first kind, which is a design argument that seeks to invalidate, to show that a particular phenomenon in living things could not have been arrived at by evolution, natural selection, random mutation. Because, and when he shows that, when he shows that, then he, his argument is that he's shown that a natural cause could not have produced this phenomenon, therefore it has a supernatural cause. Therefore, it has an intelligent designer. Yeah. So the thesis of evolution uh, is that living things were very simple and they, as they reproduce, there are random mutations and that introduces variety into the offspring. And then some of these mutations, they result in biological features that are advantageous to the survival of that um, living thing. And because that living being is now more likely to survive, it's now more likely to pass on its traits to its offspring. And then those traits, they become more popular. And then over a very, very long period of time, through gradual changes, um, things become adapted to their environments. And so this design that we see in living things everywhere where there, there's this amazing adaptation to their environments, it's a result of natural causes, unguided, no design, really. Not, no, not, design. Not yeah, so clear. no design, everyone. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, no design. And so he says, B, he says, his contribution is that there are certain kinds of complexity that don't just show purpose, because he would admit that um, certain kinds of purpose in living things can be the result of natural evolutionary processes. But he says that there are certain kinds of purpose that are irreducibly complex, meaning that their complexity cannot be reduced into smaller functions. So in order for something in order for a complexity to arrive at a particular stage through natural selection and evolution, random mutation, it needs to have performed a useful function. It was advantageous to the uh, to the animal. Um, and then uh, it improves, the useful function improves, and then the useful function improves, and then it improves, and then it improves. So he says that there are certain kinds of natural phenomena which are so amazingly complex that you cannot, you cannot imagine any kind of step-by-step improvement to get there. And his classic example is the bacterial flagellum. So the flagellum is that whip-like structure, the filament that you see here. 
And bacteria, they use it to move about in their fluid environment. And it's really amazing. And we've only discovered its complexity in the modern age. And Behe says that this kind of complexity, it's something that Darwin could not have been aware of because it's a complexity that appears at the level of molecules, at the level of biochemistry. That's why he calls his book Darwin's Black Box, because Darwin, he saw outward uh, similarities between living things, but he didn't really understand at a deep, deep level what was happening at the molecular level. And he says that at the molecular level, when you look at things, they are amazing, and they are amazing. And he focuses in on the bacterial flagellum, which is this whip-like structure, and bacteria, they use it to move about in fluids. And when you examine it, um, it looks like a machine. So um, there is a um, whip-like structure. This is the, the green thing. There's something called a hook. That's the blue thing that's attaching the, the whip to the base. And then there's a basal structure. And the thing in the base, it has something that's a motor. There's um, ions that go into it and then they it rotates at a really, really fast speed. And the, the bacterium, um, it can control its movement. So it's, it, it rotates in one way and it moves forward and it rotates another way and it moves backward. And there are other kinds of motion that are possible as well. And all of this is made using proteins, like, like intricately designed molecules. And he says there's like 40 proteins and he says you move any one of them, it breaks down. So he uses the example of an engine, of a, um, a motorboat has an engine. He said, can you, and, and it's, a, it's a good example because this is very much like the engine, it has many of the same parts. He says, if you just take away one part, it stops working. And so you can't imagine there could not have been a step-by-step -step process, evolutionary process, unguided, random process by which this complexity it arrived at this you know, amazing, um, amazing level. And when he does that, this concept of irreducible complexity, he uses it to rule out natural causation, which in this case is um, evolutionary progression um, to greater and greater, gradual evolutionary progression towards greater and greater complexity. And that allows him to conclude that, uh, that uh, there is a supernatural designer with an intelligence that um, that speeded up things. So he doesn't actually deny evolution by natural selection. He doesn't deny um, universal common descent. He believes that uh, humans and chimpanzees do have a common ancestor. Um, but he says that there needed to be the guiding hand of an intelligent designer that speeded up the process at certain places and, and fixed things. You seem to be saying on the one hand is irreducibly complex, which uh, and therefore can't be the product of unguided evolution. On the other hand, he's saying, well, it is the process of evolution. It's just speeded up by God. Uh, I, I don't understand this. this, this, this so when it, when it, 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 it there, there's an, there's an evolutionary process and then there's a jump that's required. Ah, and that jump, you can't evolution can't do it. And so uh, 
Yeah. The hand of an intelligent designer does something, and then it, and then it continues. But is he, is he suggesting at that point that this jump? Um, I don't know if he has the Cambrian explosion, this idea of punctuated equilibrium in mind. Is that what he's referring to? This idea of the sudden appearance of a whole raft of species from apparently nowhere in geological time. But is he, is he saying God literally did a miracle there? Is that he's saying? Is it, is it like a supernatural event where a previously relatively mundane process is, is transformed miraculously into this apparently irreducibly complex phenomena is that his story is he mixing different explanations then supernatural and natural to account for everything he sees yeah that's that's how i would say it but he very carefully avoids reference to god and he just uses intelligent design because um you know opposition to evolution has a um checkered history in the united states and he was <laughs> uh, a witness yes. in one of the trials and he was cross-examined, and so he advocated for, um, you know, for uh, on on the side of the quote-unquote anti-scientific, um, uh, you know, establishment. So, um, so he he doesn't say God; he just says there is an intelligent designer. So it could, so it could be an, it could be an alien species that created this in principle. In principle, yeah. So it's not supernatural then. I mean, in principle, it could, it could be a natural agent from another part of the universe. If he's if he's not owning God, but he's saying intelligent design, that does open the door up to other agents in it the does. cosmos who might have done it. Yeah, it does. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that's his. Uh, his so, so he's a he's a weak materialist. Is that what you you you're being yeah? So so he's a weak materialist because because so there's there's strong materialism. Strong materialism is full-out materialist atheism, mm. that atoms and molecules, initial conditions of the Big Bang, laws of nature, no God. That's mm. full-blown full materialism. Weak materialism, it affirms atoms and molecules, laws of nature, um, contingent, we're going to look at this word contingent, things making other things happen, things in the universe making other things happen, but then it also affirms um, belief in supernatural agency where the laws of nature can be overpowered by something that's more powerful than nature. And this is something that, you know, it's, it defies the laws of science. So yeah, I, I would call it a miracle, um, but they might, not, they might not say that in the scientific, because it might not be acceptable in the scientific establishment to say that, but, uh, but that's the so he that's why he's a weak materialist, and I think that that uh, that is only obvious. His weak material is only obvious from a Muslim perspective, uh, because we we don't um, traditionally you know, Muslim theologians haven't held that things in the universe actually make other things in the universe happen, and so when we analyze this concept of irreducible complexity from a Muslim perspective. Um, then we can see um, the weak materialism. But when a materialist atheist criticizes this, um, he's upset because it's not materialistic enough. Right. And so, uh, so, so I think like this is a um, it's a Muslim uh, Muslim perspective. Okay. So I mean, okay. So I'm just wondering what what is wrong with being a, a weak materialist? Do you think? 
So I think there's two ways to look at the problem of being a weak materialist. There is the perspective of the strong materialist, the atheist, from the perspective of a strong materialist and atheist scientist or an almost atheist scientist, scientist who behaves as though he's an atheist, methodological naturalist, um, there is a, there's a criticism um, and there's a problem. And I think uh, that that problem is not appreciated well enough by, um, by Muslims and also by Christians. So, and I want to look at that. And there's also a problem from a no materialist. Um, I prefer that to an immaterialist. I'll tell you why, which is the pr perspective of a Muslim. And so what do you think if we start with the atheist? Yeah, sure. Go ahead, please. Okay. So before I do this, I want to warn you. <laughs> I want to warn everybody who's, who's watching. Because I'm going to take you a little bit out of your comfort zone. Um, I'm going to try and make the atheist materialist argument as strongly as I can. Mm. And I really want everyone to understand this. And that means you need to kind of hold back on your instinct to respond um, because I think there is something uh, that merits understanding. And this is going to be a problem that no materialism, the Islamic perspective is going to solve. The Christian perspective, it can't solve it, but we can solve it. Right. So um, so there, there's a, from the perspective of strong materialism, there's a philosophical reason to have a problem with this kind of weak materialism. And then there's like an emotional, uh, emotional reason that builds on this philosophical problem. So the philosophical reason is that, um, so the, the standard scientific uh, response to this, and uh, this is one of the reasons why in intelligent design isn't considered um, science proper by the scientific establishment. It's that um, science is, uh, it's a project of discovering more and more things about the universe. So if we look at a particular um, phenomenon of biological complexity, then we might not be able to understand at this point what the natural causes are that led to this level of complexity. Um, the approach of a scientist is to say that okay, it's a problem that needs to be solved. Let's take things one step further. Let's try and understand how we could have arrived at this level of biological complexity through natural causation. So when an intelligent design advocate makes an argument that this was the result of the action of a supernatural designer, and he puts that there, then from the perspective of the scientist, it is preventing him uh, from continuing his scientific investigation because the, the progress of science has been blocked by, has been plugged by something that is, um, that is, uh, you know, from his a, a dogma, kind of a, a, a dogma that's saying, no, this is supernatural don't go there, which of course is a red flag to a bull, isn't it? It's saying, you know, the, the, we, we, we will go there because the history of particularly the Christian West and the Christian church and science has often been one of uh, these red lines. You can't cross these. Exactly. 
and, and, and so it creates this tension, this conflict, apparent conflict between science and religion. Yeah, and that's that's the that's the non-philosophical reason. Non, so, so the non-philosophical reason builds on the philosophical reason and it says that, oh my God, there's a religious person who <laughs> is saying God did it. And he's never going to let go of that because it's existential to him. And he has a history of, of, uh, of, uh, you know, of faith, irrationality, and this is really dangerous, right? Mm -hmm. So we have to go against all of our values of um, uh, freedom and democracy and censor it <laughs> to um, guarantee the, the um, you know, whatever. So, um, but there, there is a, uh, so what basically what needs to happen is that I think that it's, fair from the perspective of the materialist to say to the weak materialist, the one who's arguing for supernatural causation, that you should be open to scientific inquiry. Meaning that if you want to, they don't actually, they go much further than this, but I think that it's fair for them, for the materialists to say that your conclusion of a supernatural designer needs to be a tentative hypothesis that needs to be um, open to further examination and critique and discussion. And I think that to be fair to the proponents of intelligent design, uh, Michael Behe, Stephen Meyer, Meyer, I think they, they do, they are open to that. And it's, uh, and that's the, the evidence of that is in the back and forth, right? So the, the materialists, they will, they'll actually, they'll give examples of how the flagellum could have evolved by step-by-step -step process. And they'll say that uh, there are many different kinds of flagella and different kinds of bacteria and non-bacteria. And that's evidence that it can evolve in different ways. Um, and you can, you can actually take small parts and they give, they give examples of how um, they can have some useful function. And then that's disputed by um, the intelligent design advocates and it gets very, uh, it turns into very complex science, technical, yeah, very complicated science. And, yeah. um, and that actually, I think it goes to show that the, that these, um, that Behe, Meyer, they're, they're, they're strong scientists, right? So they can actually make a scientific argument. And so the, I don't agree with this idea that they're not real scientists, that, but where's that idea coming from? That idea is coming from an apprehension. Um, that the door to further scientific inquiry is going to be closed. Um, uh, I noticed on the, uh, look, um, if you look up Michael Behe, or, or you Google his name and look at the Wikipedia article, in the first paragraph, Wikipedia describes him as advocating pseudoscience. In other words, yeah. fake science. So this, this is something you would dispute. They're saying, and indeed he is a serious scientist at a reputable American research university. Um, it's got quite a slur, really, on, on his work, arguably. Um, yeah, so I don't, I don't think that's fair. I think I mean, that's an ad hominem uh, argument. Yeah. Yeah. So you can, you should, you, if somebody wants to disagree, and if the whole scientific um, uh, community wants to disagree with it, like they should disagree with it. They should, they should bring evidence for it. Um, uh, but it should, it should remain like a, a civil and um, scientific um, academic uh, discussion, right? And that's 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 where it should that's where it should be. Um, so, uh, but, uh, but I think that there is a point, there is a point that needs to be addressed. And so, and I, and I, and I, 
you know, I feel that it would be better for the intelligent um, design advocate to point this out and say that, listen, I know that you are apprehensive. Mm. You're apprehensive because um, you think that I am going to close the door to further scientific inquiry. I see where you're coming from. You're thinking I'm, I'm an overzealous, irrational, religious person. I'm just trying to make a scientific argument. That's not, that's not what I'm trying to do. And it's not, it's not accurate for you to slur me in this way. So, but, but there's a fear that is undermining science, this uh, ID argument, the Christian ID argument. And it's like saying that it's a God of the gaps, isn't it? Because science can't explain it, ergo supernatural agency. And, and, and that goes against the whole kind of scientific method, doesn't it? That one doesn't just suspend science be because of religious dogma. Yeah, um, there's God of the gaps. There's also methodological naturalism. So God of the gaps, I have a, you know, I have, a, I have a, I have a perspective on it that I think we might not have um, time to talk about today. I do have a video on the in Thinking Muslims Guide for Atheist Arguments um, on God of the Gaps. Right. Google it. Maybe we can have another another okay. discussion. Sure. Um, yeah. But uh, but I think methodological naturalism. I want, I want to focus on that for a second, and yeah. I want to give the 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 <coughs> perspective of a scientific establishment. Um, and so, uh, and so what's the, the idea here is that the scientist is trying, is searching for natural causes. The scientist is searching for natural causes. Now from a Muslim perspective, um, I'm searching, a Muslim scientist is searching for, um, associations that God has placed between things in the universe. And so if that's what I'm searching for, then there is some kind of methodological naturalism that I need to uphold. I mean, because what, what is essentially, what is methodological? So if you take materialism out of it, so materialism is the problem. It's, and we're going to look at how to get rid of it. But if you, take method, if you take materialism out of it and then you just understand what's left, then what's left is you are searching for how something in the universe is related to something else in the universe. Mm. And, and you're studying the atoms and molecules and regular associations. This is what you're studying. Mm. And so, so now somebody says that, well, um, there is something else. So from, and from, a, from a Muslim perspective, like the miraculous agency of God. So, I guess from a Muslim perspective, and that's the difference, right? That's the difference between the Muslim perspective and the weak materialist perspective of Bihi. From a Muslim perspective, everything is already the action of God. I mean, there's no, there's not going to be any, there's not going to be any competition. But because Bihi sets up a competition, mm -hmm. a competition between the explanation of natural phenomena. Um, using other natural phenomena between that and between God, uh, there is a there is a, there is a religion science conflict inherently built into it. Wow. There 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 has to be. <clears throat> um, um, there has to be, and so and I, and I don't think that that's that's well appreciated. Um, so um, does that make sense? Oh, it does. I, I'm mindful of that. Be is is actually a Roman Catholic. Uh, I mean, he's quite open about this, and so 
there is a tradition obviously in Catholicism with Galileo and so on where there is there has been some tension between yeah. science and the magisterium of the church which denied of course at one point that the earth went around the sun and around, in fact the earth was the center of the universe so um yeah there, there is this history of, of conflict but also I mean some eminent scientists have been Catholic as well um so it's yeah not yeah so yeah. so I think that I think what Muslims we need to be conscious of this um, because if we appreciate the the standard um, scientific establishment critique of this and understand where it's coming from and restrain ourselves from just having this like no because because by imagining by imagining that by accepting this we are removing God from uh, from science we're removing God from religious belief we're removing that's that's the mistake the Christian ID advocate would say that methodological naturalism is a bias that prevents them from ever reaching a rational conclusion um, yeah so th there and I think that's a, that's a fair criticism so the rational conclusion the rational conclusion in the case of the intelligent design advocate, <laughs> is that there's design in nature. Mm. And that's a fair criticism because methodological naturalism, while it has some valid concerns, it also has a blind spot, but that blind spot is a result of materialism. I'm gonna mm. show you that. And mm. so when, you, when, a, when a materialist does methodological naturalism, because he already believes that the universe is atoms, molecules, laws of nature, initial conditions at the Big Bang, necessary entailment, no design, because he, because he believes that, when he comes up with a scientific explanation, it's going to preclude design. Mm -hmm. it's, going to, it's going to, and so what the, what, the, uh, what the ID advocate is saying that, well, that's not <coughs> right. There's design, clearly. The bacterial flagellum, is designed, and he's right. Clearly, the bacterial flagellum is designed, and so over here, we agree with that. We agree with him, but the argument that he's making here is better made like this. I think it should be formalized like this. It should be formalized by saying, uh, I don't have any slides for this, but just you, know, you can imagine this: that it's a. It says that if materialism is true, then there's no design. That's the, that's, that's the major premise. If materialism is true, what do we mean by materialism? Strong materialism. If strong materialism is true, atoms and molecules, initial conditions of the Big Bang, laws of nature, blind forces of nature, then there cannot be any design in the universe. The universe would look very different. Mm. But, this is my minor premise, there is design. Clearly, the bacterial flagellum is designed. So what does that mean? It means materialism is false. I think that's good. That's a good argument. It means that material, strong materialism is false and there needs to be a designer. There needs to be an intelligent designer. But, uh, but so what this does is it gets rid of the conflict, mm. but it doesn't, it doesn't close all of the, it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't put everything into a coherent worldview because a super, it, the supernatural intelligent designer alone is not a solution. 
Mm. So what's the solution then? Okay, so in order to understand the solution, let's look at uh, a, uh, a Muslim critique. And so this is this is a um, this is an argument, a visual illustration of an argument called the argument from contingency. We spoke about it earlier in an earlier video on uh, on your channel. So the idea behind the argument from contingency is that things in the universe are dependent. So when I look at the sky, it's blue. I say, what made it blue? Everybody says, what makes, why is the sky blue? And by the mere fact that somebody asks, why is the sky blue? They are admitting that its blueness is dependent on something else. And so you search for an explanation. So um, the scientific search for explanations for natural phenomena it is an admission, an implicit admission that those things are dependent. And we have a formal term for this. We call it contingent. Those things are contingent. Um, and contingency means dependency. So what science attempts to do is explain dependent things, contingent things, using other contingent things. So it, uh, where, why is the sun shining? Because of nuclear fusion. Well, nuclear fusion is also a contingent phenomenon. It's also dependent. It needs further explanation. Um, and so you would go and you would describe it in terms of um, the, uh, the, the atomic properties of hydrogen and helium and the loss of mass and e equals mc squared. And then that opens up another question. And so since science always explains things in the universe using other things in the universe, and th since things in the universe are all dependent, contingent, um, it is really not giving an explanation. Why? Because, uh, because dependent things cannot fulfill the dependency of something else. This is an intuition. It's like, a, and so I like to use a, this analogy of a illustrative analogy. It's not an analogical argument, but it's an illustrative analogy um, where you have a long line of leaning people. You have A leaning on B and B leaning on C and C leaning on D. If, there, if all you have is a long line of leaning people, then you're gonna fall down. There needs to be something independent that is holding them up. And in its absence, everything would be lying on the ground. So there's what this illustration brings to light is that if A depends on B and B depends on C, then really B isn't doing anything. A is just depending on C. So if C was standing up straight holding A and B, if C let go, they would both fall down. And what that shows is that it's doing all the work. So if you have something that's leaning on something that's leaning, then the second thing isn't really doing anything. It's just passing the buck to the next thing. And if they're all leaning, if they're all leaning, then there's nothing real for anything to depend on. So this intuition, this intuition, it shows that it's impossible for contingent things to fulfill the dependencies of other contingent things. And so there is a necessary being. A necessary being is the opposite of a contingent thing. It's something that is independent, 
there's something independent that is fulfilling the dependencies of everything in the universe. So can, can I, before we go, can I just use a different way of putting this to see if I've yeah. understood you correctly? Uh -huh. uh, because this is obviously a, an analogy uh, to, to an extent, um, you know, people leaning on people, people only. Are, are you are you saying that therefore that the um, the phenomena in the universe, which come the blueness of the sky, can be explained by um, uh, uh, um, other causes to do with the sun, which in turn could be described by other causes? Are you saying that whole process, the existence of existence itself? is contingent and therefore requires a necessary being so it's not so much that things are moving away from the leaning analogy that that all these contingent things need an explanation for their existence as such which is not contingent and that ergo there must be a necessary being or i it what looks like you're doing here with the the leaning the leaning people it looks like a first cause argument as well so the first cause is what brings these contingent series into being gets the series going but you, you i don't think you're saying that you're, you're talking about ontology aren't you that the, the very existence of matter itself or the universe itself um requires in all its contingency in all its where you're describing it requ requires a deeper metaphysical explanation just for its very existence and that is the contingency and necessary being we're talking about. Have I got that? Is that more? It's spoken like a theologian who's familiar with, uh, with the arguments. So I've, I've um, traditionally, mm -hmm. um, the way that the contingency argument has been articulated by Ibn Sina and others um, in the Christian tradition as well, it, it's, it's in terms of the kind of existence. So they'll say that you have contingent existence and necessary existence. And so, it's possible for something to exist or not exist. And then you infer from that it's ontological dependency on something that exists necessarily. Mm. Um, I've chosen in my articulation um, not to do that. So this articulation also has precedent in Islamic tradition. It's this leaning long line of leaning people analogy was used by the you know, Mustafa Sabri, uh, one of the greatest right. theologians of the mo modern age. And so I, um, I actually I took it from him, and and he he's articulating uh, other other ways to uh, to formulate it. And so Mustafa Sabri was um, a critic of materialism, and he does a really good job. And so I've I've found that this analogy is a better way to communicate this idea to a materialist. And the reason is that this analogy doesn't look at the ontological contingent status of the existence of things, but it just looks at their features. Mm. And it says that their features, they need to be explained. So if I look at everything in the universe, when I look at the blueness of the sky, the shining of the sun, the blowing of the wind, um, the structure of DNA, uh, the structure of a bacterial flagellum, when I look at all of these things, they need to be explained. and. The reason why I think that this is superior is because I meet the scientist who's a materialist where he is. I'm starting from, from his point of departure. So I'm start because he's also searching for explanations of why the things in the universe are the way that they are. So I am, this is, this is an argument that looks at not 
the contingency of existence, although that's entailed by this, but the contingency of the features of the things in the universe that a scientist is also seeking to explain. So that's that's step one. Does that make sense so far? Yeah. Okay. So now, uh, now the so this is not a first cause argument. The first yeah. cause argument is an Aristotelian argument. Mm. So uh, Thomas yeah. Aquinas is one of his five ways. Um, but the Muslims traditionally have not made a first cause argument. Mm. A first cause argument, it's you take a line of dominoes and you push the first one prime yeah. over, right? And then that activates the second, activates the third, activates the fourth. So there's a series of activations. Um, and what I've done, what I've, or Mustafa Sabri did here is he didn't, it's not, you're not pushing the dominoes, you're leaning them back. Yeah. <laughs> right. Which, which is, um, which is different. And that's, that's one of the reasons why, you know, I don't, I actually call this the Quranic contingency argument because mm -hmm. it's, it's not the same as the contingency argument that was made by Thomas Aquinas, which had Aristotelian underpinnings. And you can see that by the conclusion, because the conclusion of this argument, if you, a conclusion of this argument is that no contingent thing fulfills the dependency of any contingent thing. So really, the, the sky isn't made blue by the diffraction of sunlight by the atmosphere of the earth. That's not what's making it blue. The thing that's making it blue is God, necessary being. So I, there's a jump from necessary being to God. But if we, if we just... Um, if you just say necessary, it's a necessary being that's making it blue. It's a necessary being that's making the sun shine. It's the necessary being that's making the wind blow. And the impulse of the materialist is, is to stand up and say, no way, like you're bringing God in everywhere. <laughs> you know, like you're getting rid of science. But you're not. You're not. What you're doing is you are reinterpreting natural causation as a series of regular associations that are dependent on God. And so these are regular ways in which the necessary being, let's just call it God for now, um, that th th the necessary being is upholding in the universe. And so mm -hmm. in, um, so this is, it's consistent. There's a rational argument for this. It's also consistent with our, with our belief. So, you know, when we get sick, the Prophet وسلم, he taught us a dua, he taught us to take medicine, but then he taught us to say, Allahumma anta shafi la shifa illa shifa'uk. Oh Allah, you are the one who cures. There's no cure except your cure. And there's many, many examples of this. There's no power nor might except um, by God. We have this concept of means. You take the means and then you rely on God. You take the sabab and then you rely on God. It's all, it comes out of this kind of perspective. So, so can you just explain a bit more why it's impossible for contingent things to fulfill the dependencies of other contingent things? People may not be very clear what you mean by that. So you're, you're saying that... Yeah. Um, contingent things like anything in the universe can't be explained in terms of other contingent things. Ultimately, it must be explained in terms of a necessary being, i.e., God. Ultimately, can you explain that? Because although they are, although it's a perfectly rational thing to say, it, 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 is that a, is that a necessary conclusion or is that a conclusion of faith? No, it's a necessary conclusion. Okay, it's can you explain why? Can you explain so, why it's necessary? Okay, so there's there's uh, many ways to do this, but what I've done is the way that I choose it, choose to do it is through this analogy. It's not really an analogy; it's an intuition. Mm. And so I want to I want to see if 
let's see. So what's the intuition? The intuition is that if I, um, if I, uh, so I'll, I'll uh, let me use another, somebody else, uh, one of my, one of my students, um, he, he said that he reformulated the long line of leaning people analogy. And he said that it's actually better if you, instead of having people leaning, you have them standing on each other's shoulders. So you have somebody standing on somebody else's shoulders, standing on somebody else's shoulders, standing on somebody else's shoulders, and there's no ground or you put the ground there, right? So if you, if you put the, if you, so without the ground, they'd all be falling. Um, and uh, that, that you know, ground, I think that ground therefore is not a first cause, it's an ontological necessary being. Is that right? It's the thing that's sustaining everything. That's right. Because right. there, there's a slight confusion there in my mind between, because it looks like it, you might be alluding to first cause there, like the thing that that's enables the first cause, the first series to yeah. get going. But you, you don't mean that. You mean a, a metaphysical. Um, yeah. Uh, right. So an implicit then in this, an unstated assumption is, I think you'd agree, that an infinite regress, an infinite series of, contingencies going back into the past is not coherent or not possible so therefore you has to be there has to be a, a this ground to use that analogy to, to uh bring that about this contingent series that that was an unstated assumption that because otherwise you can simply say well i don't need a ground we can just have contingency yeah. on forever that's right yeah I, I didn't present the formal argument i i just uh but you you uh, yeah that's right okay okay thanks okay so okay. So what this what this does is um, so is that now the thing that is proving the existence of God now God I've placed in bold because what I mean by God here is not what is meant by God in the intelligent design argument for those who will put God there so be he be he won't do it but others they do um, so what what's meant by God there is a supernatural being something that's that's that can overpower the laws of nature and is in competition with them but here god is a necessary being it's a necessary being and uh, and he has he has volition he has agency you know he has he he designs everything in the universe but the way that i know his existence is through the ontological dependency contingency of everything in the universe so um the so it's this thing that's proving the existence of god and so now this now what, what, what it means is that i don't need to disprove any natural explanation get rid of any na national explanation to make space for god but rather um this perspective of contingency it eats up science it swallows mm. the whole thing. Mm. It's it, and so. Uh, sorry, this, this there, 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 there's there. no competition. There's no competition then between science and and this understanding by definition because they're completely different paradigms, different ontologies, yeah. and they they were what what one exists within the other. Actually, science was, exists within this larger paradigm. Yeah, um, yeah. It, it gobbles it up. It swallows. It gobbles it up. <laughs> it gobbles it up. So, and this is, so, so this is something, and this is what traditional Muslim, Muslims did. Muslims ate up Aristotle <laughs> in the same way. Like they, um, there was never, 
by, by, by changing it, by, by doing this. So if we look at, if you just compare the three, three, so you have on the left-hand side, you have strong materialism. Yeah. In the middle, you have weak materialism. On the right, you have no materialism. So on strong materialism, contingent things make other contingent things happen and there's no God. On weak materialism, contingent things make other contingent things happen and there's also a supernatural being, a supernatural God, who can intervene and do something different. He can overpower. And on the and so so ID, it comes out of this worldview. Mm. It is speaking from this worldview, and that's why it's inconsistent with uh, with my beliefs as a Muslim, and also and, I think rational investigation. Yeah, so, it's no accident that be he, uh, for example, is a, a Roman Catholic. Uh, therefore, uh, because he, he is coming from that Christian kind of mindset in, in that middle column. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and so. And then from, from, from an Islamic perspective, God is making everything happen. And he has established regular associations between the things in the universe. And so that this does not invalidate science because I, I, I do the experiments, I make inferences to the best explanation, and I come to, a, I come to, I come to conclusions about how the universe works. I know that when I get medicine, when I take medicine, I'm going to get cured. I know that... Uh, you know, the, there is a relationship between nuclear fusion and the shining of the sun, and so I can, I can, I can do everything, and I get my design too, <laughs> because uh, and also it's impossible on that paradigm for science to disprove God. It's literally it's a category mistake. Uh, yes, it's to be an error in thought, in thinking, in logic to think that science could disprove God is actually impossible because yes. it's, it's a different level of discourse. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yes, absolutely. So uh, that's exactly right. right. Um, yeah. So, um, so this, this, this is part of uh, like what I um, actually teach this in, in a course called Why Islam is True. It's available online. So how should Muslims use the concept of irreducible complexity then? Because surely it has some use because it does actually, uh, you know, showcase some stunning examples of complexity and design, I should say, and complexity in the universe. And, and that, I mean, the Quran draws, calls our attention to ayat, signs in the universe. So, but does it have any utility for you? Yeah, it, so, but first thing is oh. that we actually don't need irreducible complexity to show design. So irreducible complexity, it says that you have design when something is so complex that evolution cannot produce it. Mm. So in order for you to see design on irreducible complexity, it has to reach that, that level. Um, and the reason why that's the case is because there's an assumption of materialism. There's an assumption that things in the universe make other things happen. But if I take that away, then now I see design everywhere. I see design everywhere. Um, so this, our meeting right now was designed. There's a purpose to it, right? You see purposes, when I, when I drink water, it's associated with the quenching of my thirst. It's all dependent on the necessary being. I know I know that I, can, I perceive purpose. I see purpose. So there is, and, and my relationship as a believer with God in my everyday um, uh, you know, life, it's based on the perception of purpose. 
And uh, my gratitude to him is based on a perception of purpose. My worship is based on a perception of purpose. I have a purpose. My purpose is to worship God. Mm -hmm. So, um, so I don't, so, so the standard of irreducible complexity is not required to show design. So the design inference, William Dembski has a book called The Design Inference. And yes. he, um, uh, he uses this idea called specified complexity. And so it's all, all of these design inferences, you have to show complexity. So you don't need that level of complexity. And, and uh, Muslims and Christians as well, I think like we've always seen design in the universe as intuitive part of our religious experience. Mm. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that when things reach a very, very high level of design, such as um, the examples that are um, brought to illustrate this phenomenon of irreducible complexity, then that amplifies design. It's even more designed. Right. So, so that, and that's the usefulness of it. So the, the work that's done by the intelligent design uh, scientific community is phenomenal. It's phenomenal because it is, they're, because, they're, because they're believers in God and purpose, they are unveiling incontrovertible evidence of purpose. And it's really, it's really good, you know? And uh, yeah, I love it. I know you like it too. Um, <laughs> but then there's a third thing Oh, well, 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 while we're talking, while we're praising intelligent design, then um, I recommend this book, of course, uh, Stephen Mayer, Return of the God Hypothesis. Yeah. Uh, he says there are three science discoveries that reveal the mind behind the universe. There's some interesting, very high, high-level scientific, scientific uh, recommendations actually from this book, even from yeah. a Nobel Prize winner. Um, so he's a, he's an opponent. He's a Christian. He's an opponent of IDs, but but nevertheless, he makes some very interesting points, as you say. Yeah, but then there's the third thing. Yep. And I think this is, this, is, this is really powerful. It's that if, if there is a natural explanation for things that I previously thought were irreducible, irreducibly complex, it doesn't undermine the perception of design. It actually strengthens it. Because for, um, for God to not just... So there's this idea that in order for me to see design, God has to intervene and make this spectacular show, right? Mm -hmm. but, but if that spectacular show was a result of um, carefully designed series of causes and effects and initial conditions and everything is dependent on God, it's far more spectacular. <laughs> it's far more spectacular. So... So that's why I don't I don't need to fight. I don't mm. need to have I don't need to fight. I actually get a superior result if now I I think that the rational perspective is to be open. Like I'm open. I'm I'm op op the materialist isn't open to the fact that that something doesn't have a natural explanation. I'm open. I'm open to it. Um I can entertain an argument. I can I can look at it, but I'm not threatened. I'm not threatened by scientific explanations. And mm. I think that's that's really important. Yeah, yeah. So uh, Muslims then don't need to place themselves into any conflict with science. They're simply not an issue by definition, impossible. Exactly. So what's your position on evolution then, specifically with respect to Adam, Adam and Eve, our first parents? And how would that compare, for example, with Behe? Okay, good. So, um, so I think what there's, broadly speaking, there's two issues with evolution from a theistic perspective. The first is 
um, whether or not to disprove the existence of God. And so what we've seen right now is that it doesn't because it, contingency eats it up, eat, eats up everything. So if it were to be true, it wouldn't disprove the existence of God. But there's a scriptural consideration. And the scriptural consideration is that Revelation tells me that the first human being was created directly by God and is not the product of an evolutionary process. So, um, so I think, so how do I, how do we make sense of this? Now, um, there are, the argument that I just showed, the Quranic argument from contingency, is the first of four arguments, which you can, um, it'll be out inshallah in my, in my, in my book, Kalam 3.0, it's also there in the Wise Islam is True course. But these arguments, they stack on top of one another. First, you show that the universe depends on a necessary being. Then you show that that being is an agent using design. Then you show that that agent is one. Um, and now everything in the universe is the action of one being on whom it depends. And then you show using miracles um, that, uh, and also this concept of mass transmission, that the Prophet Muhammad وسلم, existed and he performed miracles. Um, and when you see that in the context of his claim to be God's messenger, God um, breaks a regular association, then that is divine confirmation of his claim. So what this does is, this is a very, very quick overview. But what this does is, and this is the reason why I'm explaining this, is that the Quranic revelation becomes something that is based on evidence. I actually have evidence that this is from the being on whom the universe depends. So now when I, when I um, affirm my belief in um, the miraculous creation of Adam, I'm doing it based on evidence. So yeah, sci sci there's scientific evidence, but there's also revelatory evidence. And, and my revelatory evidence is not based on faith. So what a, what a scientist, so a Muslim scientist would do is he would do everything that a scientist does, but then he has a data point that the scientist doesn't have. Mm. And when you put that data point in mm. and you affirm and you get rid of materialism and you affirm the possibility of miracles, then the rational conclusion is that, is that, um, is that you know, if, some, if, if scientific evidence led somebody to believe that evolution is true, then the rational conclusion would be to accept Adam from that as a miraculous exception. And it's not, it's not unscientific because I believe that fire didn't burn um, Ibrahim salam, but I believe there's an association between fire and burning. So I can, I can consistently um, affirm a general regular association mm -hmm. and miraculous exceptions based on evidence. So, so now where does this uh, compared to, to Bihi, where does this, uh, where does this, what's the comparison? So, so um, I think that I'm a greater believer in design than um, someone like Michael Behe, because I don't require irreducible complexity to see design. I think that I'm a greater believer in uh, natural explanations reinterpreted as regular associations than ID advocates, because I don't need to fight science. I just kind of eat it up. Um, I'm, I think I'm a greater believer in miracles than, um, than ID advocates. That's why for me to accept uh, Adam from evolution is really simple. But because they're weak materialists, um, they, uh, you know, they, they do affirm universal common ancestry relationship between chimpanzees and human beings. Um, 
and uh, and that at the expense of their scriptural commitments to the Bible. Um, and I think that uh, I think that if I just add in one comparison, I think that I'm more open-minded than and Muslims should be, and they are more open-minded than the materialist because the materialist often like I think he has many valid points, um, but you know that this assumption of materialism is just wrong. I mean, it's just uh, and mm-hmm. uh, it's not uh, it's false, rationally false, and and I think like there would it would be good for science to um, would give a refreshing perspective. It actually solves many other um, scientific problems as well. Materialism is very much the, the, the worldview, the zeitgeist of, of the West, uh, and it, it affects or infects everything. It's not just science. It's the way we uh, see each other as human beings or, or just random products of a meaningless universe and the way there's so many phenomena which it, it affects. It affects art, music, uh, philosophy. And it is a it is a, a philosophy. It's not a, it's not proven by anything. It, it's it's a, a posture, a view of the mind. Um, but, but it's it's very much in tension, as you say, with um, the the clear design of the universe, <clears throat> and it's a conflict with revelation and so on. Um, so um, thank you very much uh, indeed, uh, Sheikh Hamza, for your um, very clear presentation of uh, the, the 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 strengths and weaknesses of uh christian id so i like the fact that you're not just dismissing it you're you're seeing the strengths in it you you've mentioned stephen meyer's work as well and there's much that's uh of instruction and use for muslims but there is a quranic version of design uh the design argument which you see as pretty impenetrable to any scientific objections uh indeed it's impossible to refute it because it's not well, for the reasons you've explained. Um, <laughs> without going, I'm not going to summarize it all again. Um, so uh, as we've said, uh, it, the uh, the videos mentioned will be in the description below. Um, the Quranic Case for God video series, uh, The Thinking Muslim's Guide to Atheist Arguments, and uh, there's a Discover the Prophet uh, video as, as well. And this new book, uh, which I'm very excited to hear about, when, when is that going to come out, do you think? I think... Um... Two or three months, inshallah. Two or three months. Yeah, um, you'll get a copy. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> Will it be, be a hard copy as well as being a PDF or what? what yeah, it's going to be a hard copy. Yeah, hard, hard copy. Excellent. Well, that would be extremely interesting to have a look at. Inshallah, we'll, we'll have you on again to uh, discuss that uh, work. So, um, do you have any concluding words, Hamza, before we before we finish? Um, yeah, I mean, I think that. Uh, um, I think it's very refreshing um, as a Muslim to see that when you think clearly, everything falls into place in a very nice way. And uh, yes. um, alhamdulillah, alhamdulillah for the blessing of Islam. Alhamdulillah, a, a beautiful summary there. Yeah, well, thank you very much, Sheikh Hamza. Until next time. Islam. Nice buns, soft, fluffy, and ultra low net carbs. Discover Hero Bread, the delicious ultra low net carb bread. With incredible taste and texture, Hero Bread has zero grams of sugar and is under 100 calories per serving. Plus, high in fiber with 5 to 10 grams of protein per serving. Order from Hero.co now and get 10% off your first purchase with promo code AH10. That's 10% off with code AH10. H-E-R-O dot C-O.